Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Regular Monday night against the stream meditation class. Anybody who's with us for the first time tonight, welcome to you. Thanks for joining. Uh, We'll have a period of meditation and uh, then some Buddhist conversation, lecture and discussion. And welcome back to everybody, all of you regular Sangha members. Good to see everybody. Thanks for tuning in to connect with the Sangha tonight. Let's jump right in and start meditating. Find a way to sit that is upright, relaxed. Allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Your posture to be effortless or very little effort in the posture. Allowing the hands to rest in the lap or on the legs. As you exhale, just exhaling out to the tension, softening. Letting go of any tension around the brow, the eyes, jaw. Bringing the attention down through the head and face into the neck and shoulders. And if it's possible, allow the shoulders to fall Away from the ears, let gravity pull you into the couch while maintaining the upright posture. See if you can soften your heart center, your belly. The whole torso hanging loosely around the rib cage. And take a moment to establish your aspiration for your practice, what you hope for, what you intend, what you're looking for, inspiring to.
And it can be very useful to name a, a clear intention or attitude that you're bringing to the practice tonight. If you have your own clear aspiration, establish that. If it's not so clear, if you feel open, we are going to talk about love, different types of love tonight. So you could experiment with just bringing the intention to be loving, whatever that means to you. A loving awareness of the breath and body. A loving relationship with your mind, with your emotions. This human body that we experience has six ways of knowing. We know the world both internally and externally through seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting, and feeling and thinking. We establish mindfulness, the Practice of present time, non-judgmental awareness. We become aware of these six sense doors, ways of knowing. Sounds arising and passing. Images coming and going in the mind's eye. Perhaps smells, tastes. Thoughts floating through the mind, plans and memories, hopes and fears, desires and worries. And then all of the physical and emotional sensations in the body. Feel your body sitting here upright, relaxed. Continue to soften the belly when it becomes tight. 
And we bring our attention, we choose to place our attention on the breath. Simply because it's happening right now, present time. Awareness of the breath and the sensations that the breath creates. The breath isn't really any more important than any of the other sense doors or phenomena. But for most, it is a suitable anchoring object to the present. Breathing in and knowing you're breathing in connects us with the present experience of the breath coming. Breathing out and knowing that you're breathing out connects the awareness with the present time sensations of exhaling. So we use the breath as the primary object, letting everything else be in the background. Sounds, thoughts, continuing, but we're not giving our full attention to the thinking mind or the sounds. Attempting to give our full attention to the body, breathing. If you're new to the practice, it can be helpful to note the breath in as you breathe in, out as you exhale. And if you've been meditating for quite some time, let go of the labeling, the noting, and just receive the breath and loving awareness.
when the attention is drawn away from the breath, as of course it will be over and over. Just acknowledging where the attention has gotten involved with a sound, with some thoughts or emotions in the heart mind. We're not trying to stop the mind, but for now we can just acknowledge thinking and come back to the breath, hearing, and return to the chosen object, body, breathing, receptive, loving awareness. Even if it doesn't feel loving at all, just this intention in the heart and mind. If it shifts it, if it feels a bit different to not have a clinical detached mindfulness, but an intimacy, a vulnerability and connection with your own breath, body, sitting.
if this kind of meditation practice is somewhat new to you, it's just fine to keep it simple and stay with the breath. Noting in and out. When you get drawn into thinking, just noting thinking and then returning back to the breath over and over. The Buddha's instructions are much more inclusive. Mindfulness, as we began with, includes all of the sense doors. Our whole being, the heart, mind, body, present time, non-judgmental, loving awareness, what's arising in the mind and the heart, of all of the sensations that come and go in the body, the sounds that pass through consciousness, an invitation to open and turn towards your whole body and this body that is the four elements sitting here, this body of bone and flesh, muscles, organs, this nervous system that creates sensations, contact with the seat you're on, hands resting. Heart beating, lungs breathing. bringing the kind of interest, connection, intimacy, curiosity that we would bring to someone we love. exploration of your own being, this body, what is it feeling, this heart, and including your mind, what is the mind thinking, 
tending to, turning towards the internal experience of your heart, mind, body with loving awareness. It becomes more and more clear that some of our experiences perceived as pleasant, some of the thoughts, emotions and sensations we enjoy are pleasant feeling tones. Some of the experiences unpleasant, either subtly annoying or quite painful. And some of what is happening in the body, in the mind is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Part of our interest, investigation, door to liberation is by knowing what's happening in our own minds, bodies, and how it feels based on this feeling tone and our response to it. 
We have the ability to choose whether we're going to be loving towards our pain or hateful. Whether we're going to be attached to the pleasant experiences or non-attached. With the intention of loving awareness, we incline the heart and mind towards compassion and mercy, towards all of the unpleasant experiences that are known by mindfulness. We incline the mind, heart, towards non-attached appreciation of all that is perceived as pleasant.
for the last couple of minutes gather all of this uh, loving attention we're attempting to give to ourselves and begin extending it outward to the people that you love Imagine all of the people that you love, that you really feel like, oh, I love these people. Being gathered in the same place. See who comes to mind. Is it a small group? Is your love reserved only for the nearest and dearest. Or is a large group? Dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of people. Just coming back to your breath, your body. And when you're ready, allowing your eyes to be open. Sometimes after meditation, I want to say, welcome back. <laughs> but um, hopefully you didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I mean, so much of this kind of practice, it's not like we're going on some, 
like the whole point is to be here. Oh, somebody's saying no sound. Is that true for everybody? No. I think it's your computer, Linda Lee. Everybody else says it's okay. Um, oh, the whole thing, the whole point is like to, to, to stay present, to stay here, even though we close our eyes and we go inward. And even if we do some reflections out to uh, like in this, to people that we love, uh, still the whole uh, intention of mindfulness of Buddhist practice is to embody the present, to learn to live uh, in the here and now. Um, so I'm going to jump into tonight's topic and I, um, I'm going to talk about love. As I said at the beginning of the meditation, it's the chapter that we are on in uh, Heart of the Revolution. It's uh, chapter seven. It's called Heart Core Love. And these first two sections of the, of the um, section of the book uh, about personal love and romantic love. And uh, maybe we'll say that there are, um, maybe there's lots of different types of love. Uh, apparently there are like, I don't know, seven love languages or something like that. Uh, maybe it's five, I don't know. Um, but let's say from this perspective, though, you know, I'm sure there's more, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna break it down into three types of love. Uh, personal love, romantic love, and then universal love. And so tonight we're going to go with um, personal and romantic, and then next week we'll tackle universal, unconditional loving kindness for all living beings. And um, so I was rereading, I was looking at the chapter. Um, before giving the talk. And sometimes I have this experience, you know, especially when you've written something, I think I probably wrote that over a decade ago, where you kind of reflect back and you're like, oh yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good. I couldn't like, I don't think I could write that today, but that was pretty inspired back then 10 years ago or 20 years ago or, um, and I also just had this feeling, I know I'm gonna totally contradict myself but I just had this feeling um, for some reason going into talking about love uh, tonight of like, like, I don't, I don't know what to say. And now I'm gonna say shit for the next hour, but I really had this feeling of like, what the fuck do I know about love? And even looking at the chapter of like, wow, I knew a lot of shit about love 10 years ago. <laughs> but more has been revealed. And it's that sort of, I hate to say it, but it's that cheesiest, like, it feels real to me of the older I get, the less I know. And I, I apologize for being such a, so stereotypical in that kind of perspective. Um, but it just sort of felt like that. And maybe, I don't know, I just turned 50 and 
uh, last a couple of weeks ago and I just am having this feeling of um, I don't know humility or or questioning I don't I don't feel like I'm in the uh, midst of a full-blown existential crisis or anything like that um, and I'm gonna now tell you everything that I think about love but I just have this core internal feeling around uh, who knows like feels so hard to say what love is and um, to put labels on it. I don't know. Anyways, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit tonight, so bear with me. I have this sense, so now I'm going to contradict myself and tell you all this shit I know about love. <laughs> oh. But I have this sense that personal love is totally impersonal. That we're just wired. You're just born into a mind and a body and a survival instinct and I uh, like we just with so little discernment about love and I think that one of the reasons that I think that of like you see a child that's born into just a, such a tragic situation where they're they're not met with love they're met with maybe abuse or neglect or whatever it is, but that child still bonds to and loves the parent. And in this way, I feel like it's totally impersonal. It's just like you're just born into this like attachment loving form. Uh, and on some level or another, when your children, for the most part, like you just like love your parents whether they fucking deserve it or not <laughs> whether they are you know are are actually providing and loving you and um my father i, I know uh used to talk about um and he had it in this other context where we become so um uh, attached and so uh, used to our suffering that sometimes it's like that abused child, that traumatized kid who's being finally removed, taken away from that abusive situation, but crying for uh, not wanting to leave. I, I don't want to, you know, I even though these people are not treating me well or hurting me in some way or another, uh, it's all I've known. My pain is all I've known. And that which was supposed to be loving, which was actually uh, actually quite painful, is internalized as, but this is supposed to be loving. Or this is what love is or something like that. So I don't know if you're following me. I hope you are. But I just feel like 
part of us is just born with this. I mean, there's that family of origin, you know, bonding to our caregivers kind of love, personal love. But then there's also this quality, and I'll, I'll ask you a question to reflect for a moment. Like, what do you love? And, uh, you know, think about it. You could even say it out loud, like, you know, uh, not that we're going to hear each other, but like, I love punk rock. I love Pendleton's. I love Buddhism. Like, you know, like, I love hot rods and Harley Davidson's. Like, you know, like, what do you love? Right. And, and that kind of like really thinking about, you know, And if you make a list, like in that general, like, what do you love? And, and even think about, like, do you sometimes say like, oh, I love that, or I love this, or fucking love your haircut. Now, think about it. I mean, like, is there anything that you love that's not pleasant. On some level or another, right? Is there, right? And then we could, we can flip it. We could go to the opposite and think, think of all the shit you hate. I hate mushrooms. They are disgusting. Disgusting, slimy fungus, not a food group, unpleasant. I'm exaggerating. I don't actually hate mushrooms that much, just a little bit in certain contexts. I hate being stuck in traffic. I hate mean people. I hate, just think of all of the things, right? And you know where I'm going with this. What do we love and what do we hate? And doesn't it on some level just go to like pleasant, unpleasant? <laughs> and that's why I, I, it's like this, how personal is it? We're just wired. We're just born in this instinctual drive to like, I love all the pleasant shit. I hate all the unpleasant shit. I like pleasant people. I hate unpleasant people. And that personal family is, I feel like family is this other tricky thing. Like, I don't know, like in the reflection, did your family show up? Like, I love my family depending on your conditioning with your family of origin. But some of them are pretty fucking unpleasant, right? Like, probably. <laughs> right? But like, I feel like that's one of the places where we make the exception, that there's this sort of wiring issue in us where we make the exception of like, I wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior from my friends. I certainly wouldn't maintain relationships with uh, friends. But when it comes to family, 
we put up with a whole bunch of shit a lot of the time. Bunch of unpleasant behavior. And then if we're really honest with like how much of how much of our our family is a love hate is a real mixed bag and even though we would use the convenient term of like well i love my sister or my brother or my mom or my dad or my cousin or whoever but the reality is they bug the shit out of us half of the time and uh we still love them but they're you know kind of hard to tolerate I know that there's a few people out there that are going, what the fuck is he talking about? My family's great. I love all of them and they're all pleasant and we just have this big loving family. And uh, then there's probably some people listening with this other experience of like, nope, I, my family was so dysfunctional, I had to walk away from them and there's not much love there actually. But I, I don't know, I, I think in general, probably most people come from a family where there's some mixture of love and, and, and difficulty. So the personal love, the kind of people that we love, the things that we love, setting aside romantic and sexual love, just, you know, just the personal the people that you love that you're not having sex with or wanting to have sex with or uh, it's not romantic. It's just, you know, and I feel, I have a, uh, I, I feel quite broad with, uh, I have, I, there's, I feel like I could feel a stadium with the people that I love. Like it feels pretty, you know, free flowing. You know, and, and, and people, uh, some of whom I, who I don't even have much of a relationship with, but I just like, just love, you know, that there's just this feeling of, of affection and uh, appreciation and um, You know, I've had a real uh, wild experience this last couple of years, not, not maybe not everybody, but I assume, you know, most people uh, are aware that, you know, a couple of years ago, my community went through this huge change. And uh, some of the people that I love the most um, behaved in ways that uh, I perceived were unskillful and caused me harm and caused our community harm and, you know, and I was thinking about this the other day. I was doing some writing about my life. And I was thinking in particular about my long-term meditation teacher, Jack Cornfield. And I was writing this chapter that I may or may not ever publish where I was talking some shit about him and calling him a hypocrite and <laughs> all of this, you know, kind of stuff. But then I ended it with something like, you know, he's a hypocrite and he betrayed me and all of this. And I love him. And he's been my teacher for 30 years. And this strong feeling of holding both pain 
and disappointment and betrayal and holding the wound, but that wound being held in a much bigger container of appreciation and love and caring. I know for sure that the reason that I feel that way, and it's very real and very genuine in me, is because of, you know, 30 years of meditating on loving kindness <laughs> that I have. My mind has become trained to be able to hold both. My heart has become trained to be able to hold both pain and love rather than the ordinary, uh, what the Buddha would refer to as the untrained worldling before meditation, before training our minds, the natural way to react is that if somebody hurts you, you stop loving them. You remove those feelings of love, you turn away. And you know the, the instinctual aversion to that pain is often, uh, hate. I hate this person. I used to love them, but they hurt me. So now I hate them. So it's quite, you know, and we're going in this direction with our Dharma practice of seeing clearly uh, what we love, why we love it. Usually we love it because it's pleasant. When it stops being pleasant, we stop loving it. I used to love A, B, and C. I don't love it anymore. <laughs> it stopped being pleasant. I hate A, B, and C. This isn't totally connected and I'm just, but part of what has happened for me and I think has to happen as part of our Dharma practice is that we have to abandon hatred. Abandon indulging in, believing in hatred. And when we do that, it doesn't mean, certainly for, in my experience, it doesn't mean that my mind doesn't get resentful, get critical, get... I just don't believe that hatred is ever a wise response. The Dharma has taught me that love is the wisest response even to, and especially to painful situations. Does that make sense to you? That we can hold uh, this attitude of, and maybe I'm going a little into the loving kindness, you know, um, universal for all living beings, but I'm really, I'm trying to talk about in our personal relationships, that when you visualize all of the people that you love, it can be all of the people that you have ever loved even if you don't have relationships with them anymore. Even if there's been pain in those relationships. I mean, this is of course where the practice of forgiveness, the practice of compassion. 
in the against the stream in my my against the stream book i put that quote in the beginning of the forgiveness teachings where it says um, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among those of us who love poorly and then the reality is we all love poorly and so we have to forgive every minute every day unceasingly as an act of love especially in personal human relationships forgiveness is such a core quality in order to maintain a loving attitude towards each other, even when we've been hurt. And that, of course, I'm not, I don't want to go too far down the forgiveness uh, road. I think we did that last week. <laughs> but um, of course, it also can mean having incredibly clear boundaries that we can love and have an open heart, for lack of a better word in personal relationships, even when there's been conflict and have that openness with a quite a clear boundary of like, you know, uh, I still love you and I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I still love you and I forgive you and you're not welcome in my home. And, but that, that kind of internal feeling of love that we can continue to maintain if we bring the forgiveness training to the heart. Okay, so I'm going to shift gears to talk about a romantic relationships. And um, When I'm talking about romantic relationships, um, I have to do this in a general way to talk about um, sex and love um, with the understanding that um, not all sex is going to be loving, not all love is going to be sexual, uh, not all... Um, you know, that, that there's lots of different, you know, Buddhism is very open. Uh, I don't want to get too far down into what kind of sex and is, you know, is there Buddhism, you know, the Buddha was quite open in, uh, around sex and, and, and love. And uh, as long as it's not intentionally causing harm, as long as it is uh, consensual, as long as it is, you know, appropriate and we know what's appropriate and we know what's not and you know this is our our precepts around avoiding sexual misconduct and so we set that intention and so but when in the appropriate loving romantic uh relationship how do we understand it how do we navigate it and 
you know, sex is so pleasant. <laughs> Don't you love sex because it's pleasant? And uh, I know, you know, there's probably some people who've been um, traumatized enough by sex that they have an experience of like, nope, it's actually not pleasant for me because of my wounds around it. Um, so again, I'm speaking about it in a general way, you know, um, knowing that I can't speak to every single person's experience with this. But in general, for human beings, sex is really pleasant. And because it's really pleasant and because we have this uh, instinctual drive to get attached, what is meant, you know, what often we enter into this uh, conscious or unconscious drive to like, I want a couple, I want romance, I want love, I want, you know, long-term connection, uh, intimacy, how often we end up clinging and trying to control and forgetting about impermanence, you know, and Buddhism 101, everything is impermanent. Every relationship is impermanent. Even happily ever after, one of us is going to die first unless we, you know, have some kind of suicide pact or something, <laughs> unless we both die at the same time, that could happen. But most likely, one of us is going to die first. So we enter into, you know, the, the Buddha, it's, it's, I feel like it's quite tricky to talk about sex from a Buddhist perspective and romance from a Buddhist perspective, because this is something the Buddha never had anything nice to say about <laughs> on some level or another. You know, he did give some teachings to householders and he talked about marriage and he, um, but for the most part, you know, it's clear that the Buddha's attitude was like, whoa, there's a lot of suffering in romance. There's a lot of suffering in the attachment that we naturally get into in, in sexual relationships in this in world of impermanence. So the Buddha said, you know what? Not for me. I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to, I really want to not suffer. And I think it might be easier to not suffer by not being in romantic sexually intimate relationships than it is to not suffer in the midst of them. So I want to start with this acknowledgement that I feel like we have to do from a Buddhist perspective, that sex, romance, is a choice. But it doesn't really feel, does it feel like a choice to you? I feel like for most people, considering celibacy is so fucking radical. Like it's not even on the table. Like, no, we're not. We have to couple. We have to procreate. We have to be sexual. Romance, we're just, we're driven to it. Rather than, you know, the Buddha who said, hey, 
you might want to seriously consider giving that shit up. You might want to seriously consider not indulging in romantic uh, entanglements because you're almost certainly going to suffer in them. That having been said, <laughs> here we are, here I am as someone who loves Buddhism, but chooses to take this householder path. Who says, I, I'm somebody who actually believes celibacy probably is an easier path to happiness. I actually believe that. My teachers who are monks and, you know, nuns and that's a hardcore discipline to be, you know, a, a celibate renunciate. But when it comes to quality of life and ease and probably easier, less suffering in that renunciation than most of us experience in romantic relationships and the clinging that naturally happens in our relationships. I also have some direct experience with celibacy. I spent a couple of years celibate in my 20s and I did um, about a half a year celibate Two years ago, I did six months uh, after this uh, breach of my third precept. I took a period of celibacy and, and, um, and there is something quite wonderful about not seeking. Uh, that there, there's something quite wonderful about being in these periods where uh, it's not even an option, I'm choosing to refrain, to abstain, and to just be in relationship with myself. Kind of like the meditation that we did tonight. I hope you didn't find it to be too cheesy, but this, um, like just giving ourselves that loving, intimate awareness. And in celibacy, when I'm talking about celibacy, uh, I, I mean also not masturbating, not just not seeking sex, with others, but also not having sex with oneself. There's something beautiful about celibacy and powerful. So I, I'm curious, uh, why do you engage in relationships? I don't want you to tell me, but I want you to tell yourself. Why are you not celibate? Do you love Buddhism? Some of you do. Some of you are just checking this out tonight and you're like, what the fuck is he talking about? But most of you, you know, you're a community of people who've been meditating and studying Buddhism and you understand that the, the dude was celibate and but here we are. So why are we not choosing that? Do you know, is this, is this even examined in your life? 
important to examine it. It's important to go in because relationships are so beautiful and so pleasurable and so there's so much joy in the good parts of romantic loving relationships but there's also some suffering i mean has anybody been in a romantic relationship where there was zero suffering does one such romantic relationship exist <laughs> in the mythical realms somewhere maybe? Zero suffering? I can only share my own uh, experience that it became clear to me. I felt in my, um, after doing some celibacy and seeing some dysfunctional tendencies in my own uh, relationships and but i am convinced that a loving relationship will be healing and that actually learning the non-attached appreciation learning to tolerate and enjoy intimacy and vulnerability in a romantic relationship. Although I believe that it's harder than celibacy on some level, but I just, I believe that the Dharma, the loving kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness, the awakened heart, um, and the healing of any part of us that has felt unlovable, unworthy, or unable, um, that loving, healthy, loving relationships have the potential to heal that confusion in our own heart. And that there's a way in which doing that with another person, um, I do think that there's a level that can't be done by ourselves. I, even as I say that, I, I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> I'm aware as a Buddhist, I'm not supposed to say it can't be done by ourselves because technically the Buddhist teaching is that you can do it all by yourself. You can be celibate in community, right? It's still relationships in community, but you can do it without sexually romantic relationships. But I feel very much like um, uh, relationship is part of spiritual practice. Romance is sex, all of it, part of my spiritual practice, part of my healing and awakening and non-attachment and compassion practice and forgiveness opportunities over and over and over. and asking for forgiveness over and over and over. So let me gather my thoughts for a moment. Um, see what else wants to be said. The 
I'll do this last piece and then I'll open to some conversation. Uh, my sense is that since we're choosing to be, assuming that most people listening are choosing to be in some sort of sexually romantic, uh, whether you're dating or you're married or you're in a long-term relationship or you're seeking a long-term relationship or you're you know, a polygamist or a polyamorous or an ethical non-monogamous, whatever you're, wherever you're at, that, um, that in romance, there's going to be the experience of attachment. And what we know, Buddhism 101, is that attachment causes suffering. Uh, and attachment causes suffering is because we are clinging to impermanent people who have their own moods, their own opinions, their own views, their own attitudes, their own process that is constantly changing that we don't have control over. And when we cling to somebody who's impermanent and changing and they're uh, then we suffer the, the suffering of clinging. Now, the ideal for us, and this is the goal, you probably already know this, but I'm reminding you, the goal in relationships is non-attached connection. It's knowing like they are impermanent, I am impermanent, we're both constantly changing bodies, hearts, minds, we both have our views and our opinions and our personalities, and we're all in process. And the ideal is to connect and sustain that connection in, a, uh, in an embrace that is not a attachment. Now, sometimes, my experience has been that when I find myself suffering because I'm too attached or I feel like they're too attached and I <laughs> feel smothered or I feel you know, abandoned or whatever it is, that then there's this move to detach, to avoid, be like, oh, that fucking hurt. I didn't like that. <laughs> that clinging, that, that attachment was suffering. So then we go to this other place of like, well, let's avoid that shit. And then we come back together, hopefully, right? Especially if you're in a relationship with someone who's also trying to be conscious, trying to be non-attached, trying to be wise and compassionate and forgiving. And there's this dance that happens of connection, clinging, detachment, <laughs> reconnection, clinging, detachment, or whatever your version of that is. Maybe it's detachment, clinging, connection, <laughs> however it plays out in your uh, experience. It is said that it is possible. I made the joke earlier about has anybody had a relationship where there's no suffering? It is part of the Buddha's teachings that it's possible for us to become liberated, free from clinging, filled with compassion within relationships. 
So there's all of these examples in the time of the Buddha of householders who are still sexually engaged and married and you know whatever they're doing, uh, who are getting enlightened. Um, so it's theoretically possible to get so free that we can engage in relationships without suffering about them so much. My sense is, rather than looking at, can I get completely and totally enlightened, how is this romantic drive, how is this romantic relationship, whether it's the loneliness of not having a partner or the difficulties of having a partner or having too many partners or not enough partners or whatever it is for you, how is that brought into our practice of being loving, being kind, being wise. And the wisest relationship is non-attached, intimate, present connection with ourselves and with each other. Um, and it's a high bar and we will slowly make progress in that direction uh, has been my experience. So I'll leave it there and open it up. What is your questions, comments, thoughts about you, you know, how, how is it for you in your life, in your practice around love? Whether that's personal love or romantic love. And if you'd like to answer, ask a question, please answer your, uh, raise your hand in your um on the screen i think down at the bottom there's a place where you can raise your hand maybe under the participants and um and reflect on this and does it does it make sense i see a couple questions in the rick do you have a question uh yeah if, if... go for it um to our knowledge, did the Buddha attach the encouragement towards celibacy to the notion of increasing um, being free from birth? Um, you mean like nirvana, free from the... Well, if more of us are celibate, less of us are going to return, which is part of the goal from what I understand. Is celibacy oh. a tool towards that? Well, that's an interesting... Um perspective i've never heard that uh, or contemplated it but I, I i like you know where your mind is going with that um but i think feeling was no that'd be okay too i think that the answer is no um because the that perspective is a little bit too much um sort of human centric because in that rebirth um you know mode that you're talking about um we're not we're not we're not guaranteed a human rebirth so this sort of like human overpopulation less people less human beings being born wouldn't um quite be the uh same as you know kind of taking rebirth into all of the different six realms and animal realms and so it wouldn't equate you know quite in the sort of less human population because of more celibacy more people getting liberated. Um, I don't think it would equate that way. Thank you. Yeah.
David A, jump in there. Thanks, Noah. Um, the uh, the idea of a non-attached connection that you describe uh, for me seems like the of all of the Buddhist challenges, maybe the the greatest in the context of romantic or personal love. It, it uh, more than anything seems incongruous with my sort of human inclinations. Everything else seems tameable, but the attachment that forms within the context is really sort of biased towards happiness and, and um, craving towards maintaining a loving relationship uh, seems incongruous to me. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little more on how one might approach establishing a really objective, non-attached connection, as you put it. Thanks. I don't know that I have a great answer to this, David, but I'm with you in this dilemma. <laughs> um, what I feel is that the meditation practice that we're doing, mindfulness practice, and especially the way that I was encouraging us to do it tonight, bringing that kind of in, you know, uh, intimate uh, uh, exploration of being non-clinging, uh, present with our own bodies, with our own hearts, with our own minds, the more we train our mind in this present time, non-attached, intimate connection with our own moment-to-moment -moment reality, the more we start to wake up to like, oh, wow, like I can actually do this. Like I can, my mind is starting to be more present with what's happening without so much resistance to the unpleasant or so much attachment to the pleasant. Like the, the insight into impermanence leads to less clinging. The insight into how impersonal much of what's arising in our heart and mind are leads to less identification uh, and suffering. So the practice itself does quite a bit to get us from this clinging, identified, suffering, like where we enter the, the Dharma as this like taking everything personal and being quite attached to our views and our opinions and our preferences. The practice itself starts to break, in my experience, a lot of those attachments to preferences, identification, clinging. And as that happens internally, then bringing that into our relationships. And that's what I was trying to say. I don't know how well I was saying it, but I had a core sense. I continue to have a core sense for me that that's like the final frontier, showing up in relationships uh, with others the way that I'm trying to show up in relationship with myself, where there's presence, where there's compassion, where there's forgiveness, where there's connection, and then add sex into it and the joy and the craving and the you know attachment of sex it's an advanced practice this is i don't know um I was, i'm going to say a couple of things the buddha said supposedly the buddha said if there was another energy in the human experience as powerful as the craving for sex and love 
that if there was another one that was equally as powerful, that, that enlightenment would be impossible. But because hatred isn't quite as powerful as craving, we can transform, we can wake up, we can change our relationship to craving and clinging and, and develop this skill of connected, non-attached embrace instead of clinging that it's possible and that it might just take lots of years of practice and training and and more than anything in relationships i think it takes humility because we're going to fail <laughs> over and over and over and that's where the forgiveness practice comes in uh rather you know like having that humility i'm going to keep trying to do this thing that i'm not very good at i keep clinging i keep letting go i keep reconnecting i keep asking for forgiveness i keep offering forgiveness so that the other thing that i'll share that i just love to share because it's gross is the dalai lama you know so like there's there's the Theravadan perspective, which I'm presenting. And then there's the Tibetan Buddhist perspective where they do bring some Tantra into some of the Tibetan Tantra as in sexually intimate um, Buddhist practices that are supposed to be able to be done without any attachment. And at one point, somebody asked the Dalai Lama, um, you know, are there still these uh, kind of, are there people, are there monks, are there, who are able to do Tantra, meaning have sex without any clinging and really just do it as this non-attached. He and the Dalai Lama said something like, uh, he said, I've, I've, you know, we hear many stories about ancient masters that could do this. And he said, but I know all of the highest lamas, you know, I'm the Dalai Lama, I know all of these dudes none of them could do it. No way. He said um, it would take the same kind of, and he used the term equanimity, non-preference. It would take the same kind of non-preference equanimity to be able to have no preference over eating chocolate cake or dog shit. And when you can eat dog shit, then you can call your sex Tantra. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, just call it mindfulness practice, <laughs> mindfulness of clinging. Now, I know it's a little, I'm, I'm going a little far from that, but I like it because it's gross and I think it's funny. So I hope that's helpful, David. Great answer. Thank you. Thanks. Amy. Hey, so this is kind of a comment, stream of conscious thought, but um. You know, if you have other addictions, sex relationship can be just another form of addiction. And it's funny because I've thought of attachment, you know, and around attachment theory, there's healthy attachment and unhealthy attachment. And so I've seen it as like moving relationships from having addictive qualities to healthier attachment styles. And this is even, you know, beyond, right? Non-attachment. And so I just really appreciated your question. Um, you know, why do we choose to engage in it? What are, I just think that's such a deep, meaningful question. And I guess maybe one question I have is, you know, what's your take on this notion of, 
very, you know, gender norming, but male female differences in needs for attachments or seeking attachment through romantic relationship. And does that exist? I mean, this idea that maybe uh, women go towards attachment more, almost addicted to attachment, maybe. Well, I am not um, qualified to answer that question. <laughs> uh, I'm not a neurobiologist, but I've heard that neurobiology does point towards some, uh, you know, chemical processes that are released in uh, the genders that are different, that, that women have a, a different neuro uh, biology, uh, transmission and hormones, um, that, uh, leads to feelings of more clinging around sex than men don't have the equal. And I forget the names. Is it, um, it's not serotonin it's or Pitocin. I, I forget. I, oxytocin. Yeah. Yeah. The oxytocin. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like biologically what you're, what you know, is that there's, you know, biologically there's some difference between genders and then it's experienced differently um in a general way you know and it's it's so tricky to talk about it because you know there's certainly a lot of women that will be like not me and then there's you know a lot of men who are like i get so fucking attached if you even smile at me so um it, you know, we, I don't think we can split it into genders and, and I appreciate, you know, the kind of and gender norms because there's so many different levels of identification and, and just um, of what's happening. So I will make a comment uh, briefly about uh, attachment theory. Uh, and I've, I've said this, you know, ever since I heard about attachment theory of it's like, it's just, uh, it's just bad branding and, and it's not what, uh, they meant. Um, they meant connection, you know, uh, or, you know, it's just, it's, it, and maybe they didn't, you know, from Buddhism, um, attachment always equals suffering. <laughs> Um, but when, you know, when we're talking about the kind of necessity of having a healthy connection to our primary caregivers, leading us into the ability to have healthy connections in our adult life, it's about being connected, not being, con uh, you know, uh, clung to or controlled or attached. So it's just semantics on that level. But um, if somebody would mind rebranding it as connection theory <laughs> connection uh it would make more sense to me as a non-attachment uh minded buddhist hope that's helpful uh christina go for it maybe last one we're just about out of time so i've often compared relationships to sticking a knife in the the, the electrical socket and you know i've only done that once but i've never ever done it again so why do you think we we put ourselves through those attachments through all the hurt through all of the 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 deceit everything why do why do we keep sticking the knife in the metaphorical uh outlet do you think 
I mean, it seems pretty um, impersonal uh, uh, survival instinct and just um, what is it called? Like the, for our species, the imperative to procreate and um, uh, nat sort of natural selection, you know, like we're just wired to mate. It's, you know, like it's what every species is wired to do. Uh, and most species, most beings um, don't have all of the uh, consciousness that we humans have with our big neocortex, our big human brains, where then we like, you know, take it all personal and uh, get all heartbroken when our mate runs off <laughs> with another mate. Like, you know, animals don't seem to, you know, there's a handful of species of animals who mate for life, um, but they're the exception rather than the rule. Um, so I don't know if that's answering it for you or not, but again, it feels just like this sort of biological impersonal thing. But it's also why when we come to meditation and we start to investigate and really ask ourselves, well, why do I choose this? Is there, you know, is this part of my spiritual practice? Am I entering it consciously? Is there healing and awakening potential here for me? Or am I just going through my life with the kind of ordinary programming of like, well, you just have to be in a relationship because, you know, that's what uh, we internally feel and certainly what the society tells us. Um, and it can really shift when we become more conscious about I'm choosing it. And I'm choosing it because I want to wake up and I'm choosing it because I want to heal and I'm choosing it because I want to enjoy the joy of sex and intimacy and uh, and I will um, also accept all of the difficulties that go along with it and with my eyes open knowing that there's going to be difficulties and rather than kind of being so surprised when shit gets real and hectic <laughs> You're like of course. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry, I didn't get to any of the questions in the chat. Um, class is done by donation. If you can give a donation, we ask for a $15 donation for drop-in classes. If you can do that, great. If you can do five or 10, also great. Um, if you appreciate what we are doing here at Against the Stream, and have the financial means to do it, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Uh, on the website, there's a link there, Rachel has posted to, um, you can go there and do a one-time donation, or you can say, hey, I wanna give 25, 50, $100 a month to Against the Stream just to support us. Especially, I mean, always, but especially now when um, COVID and us not being able to open, be open, um, you know, we still have to pay the rent, uh, about $3,500 a month for the meditation center that we have here. So your donations go to helping support uh, the meditation center continuing to exist. A whole bunch of meditation centers and yoga centers and all kinds of places, as we know, have been closing during this last year of not being able to operate. And I feel very committed to surviving it <laughs> and us still having a home for our sangha. I know a lot of you are from all over the country, not just Los Angeles. 
But if you can financially help, please do. It's deeply appreciated. We are a nonprofit. It is tax deductible, your donations. So. Um, and then also, you know, come and check out some of the other groups. I teach um, every Monday. Uh, Rachel teaches on Tuesday night from Seattle, but we do it here on the Against the Stream cast. Uh, Jason on Wednesday nights, Ward on Friday nights. So come check out some of the other classes and hope to see you again next Monday. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all sentient beings. May we shower this whole planet with more love and less hate and together create a positive change that will benefit all sentient beings. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.